CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in June of 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. And I'm delighted to announce that I will be there all weekend, so come and join me. Quote mens rea when you're buying your ticket for a 10% discount. And as a special bonus, the first 10 people who contact me to let me know that they've bought a ticket using my special code will get a free mens rea t-shirt. Limited tickets are on sale now, and it's a COVID-proof purchase, so there's no need to worry. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk and use my special code, MENSREA. You're listening to the MENSREA podcast, and this is the story of Georgina Eager. Georgina Eager was born in Dublin in December of 1974 to parents George and Sylvia. She would be the eldest of the couple's four daughters. Shortly after her birth, the family moved from Dublin to just outside Newtown Mount Kennedy, County Wicklow, where the wider family was from. Georgina was a sweet young woman and maybe a little naive. She was the kind of person who kept a diary filled with her thank yous. Not only did she record the good things that had happened that day, but she expressed her gratitude for them there. She found the good in every day and was grateful for it. After completing schooling, Georgina went on to take a degree in European studies in the University of Limerick. She became fluent in both French and Spanish. Georgina spent time living in both Seville in Spain and she taught for a year in France. When she returned home, Georgina lived and worked in Bray for a while, taking on a number of secretarial roles. Eventually, she moved up to Dublin and began working in Brown Thomas, a high-end department store on Grafton Street in the city centre. There, she was one of a number of makeup artists working for a luxury makeup brand. At the time, Georgina lived in a nice little flat in Black Rock. Eventually, She met a man at a work Christmas party in 2001, and the two moved in together. The following summer, Georgina decided that it was time for a change in terms of work, though. She decided to try and set up her own business as a makeup artist. She was the kind of person who would throw herself into an idea without worrying too much about the details. Everything was a learning experience for her. It was better to try and learn something than to worry too much about whether it would work out or not. She had a certain faith that she'd get what she needed from an experience and that she'd end up where she needed to. But the makeup business was hard going and, realistically, she needed a job. So, when Georgina saw a receptionist position at a homeopathic clinic advertised in a magazine, she decided to go for it. 
After all, Georgina had already taken a number of courses in complementary medicine and so had an established interest in the sector. And the idea of helping people to be well and feel better was very attractive to her. Georgina wanted to do good in the world, to make an impact, and to help people. So Georgina began working in the health clinic on St. Peter's Road in Walkinstown in September of 2002. It was run by Dr. Saf Dean, a British man originally from India. In addition to massages and colonic hydrotherapy, the doctor, or the professor, as Georgina would come to call him, was a proponent of an alternative medicine practice of his own device, which he called factology. Safdeen's legal name was Christopher Newman, the result of his second name change over the years. He'd moved from India to Britain in the 1960s, and in 1985 he'd married there and had two sons. For a time, Newman and his wife ran a beauty school together next to their home in London, but in 1990 the couple had divorced, and a few years later, Newman moved to Dublin, where he set up his health clinic. By November of 2002, a month after Georgina took up the receptionist job, she was basically running the clinic. She worked 12-hour days, six days a week, and had begun studying for a qualification, apparently issued by a company run by Newman himself. Then, in December, she moved out of the home she had shared with her boyfriend, broke off their relationship, and moved into the flat next to the practice on St. Peter's Road. The Eager family said that as her work in the clinic increased, they saw less and less of her. Georgina had not been in as much contact as she would usually have been. More worryingly, though Georgina never said anything outright to her mother or sisters about having begun a personal relationship with her boss, they were all under the impression that this was in fact the case. Newman had bought Georgina jewellery, and she told her friends and family that he promised he would be passing on the clinic and his entire Irish business to her when he returned to India to set up his own university. But Georgina was an independent 28-year-old woman, and her family, in the brief moments that they saw her, thought that she seemed happy, so they let her get on with it. The following spring, Georgina and her sisters planned to take a holiday in France, in June of 2003. The place had been rented for a month, but Georgina said she could only go for two weeks as she would be needed back at work. The clinic seemed to be taking over her life. Georgina's family became worried on Thursday the 22nd of May, when repeated attempts to contact her had failed that day. The night before, Georgina had called her parents quite upset, and was to have travelled to the family home in County Wicklow, but a few hours later she'd called back apologising for worrying them and saying that all was well once again. Georgina's parents rang her that morning to check in on her, but there was no answer on their daughter's phone. Throughout the day, her parents and her sisters tried to get a hold of Georgina to no avail. Sylvia, Georgina's mother, said later that Georgina never left her phone out of her hand, It was incredibly unusual for it to go unanswered, never mind for that length of time. They knew something was terribly wrong when they got no answer. Their anxiety grew as the day wore on, with no word from Georgina. Finally, that evening, Georgina's 25-year-old sister Brenda and their father George 
headed into Dublin and called to the house in Walkinstown, looking for Georgina. A roommate let them in, but they found that Georgina's room was locked. The flatmate told them that they'd heard Georgina's phone ringing from within the locked room. Because there was no way to get in and no sign of Georgina, George and Brenda decided to ring the guardie. They arrived at the house at half past eleven that night and asked for the eagers to wait outside while they gained entry to the room. When the door was broken in, they found Georgina lying in her bed, covered with a duvet. There was a knife protruding from the back of her neck. She was dead. George Eager recalled later to the Evening Herald that he'd known Georgina was dead when there was no sign of an ambulance coming to the flat. He kept asking the guards there if Georgina was okay and what had happened, and eventually he just knew that she was dead and fell to the ground in the garden outside the flat weeping. Georgina had been beaten and stabbed a number of times before being locked into her own bedroom. A murder inquiry began immediately, with forensics being called in early on Friday morning to examine the scene in the house. The deputy state pathologist Mary Cassidy began the post-mortem examination in the city morgue late on Friday. A hammer was also found in the room, but it was unclear if that had been used in the attack. On Friday, the 23rd of May, 2003, detectives from Crumlin Station travelled to London and questioned a British man in his late 50s or 60s there as part of their investigation. It was believed at the time that Georgina had known the man being questioned, but the exact nature of their relationship was not yet known. He had been picked up on Westminster Bridge in a taxi late on Thursday night by London Metropolitan Police over a public order offence. He was drunk. It was reported that police in London contacted Gardie in Dublin when the man gave an address in the city, and that the man was then detained in relation to the recently discovered murder. He was searched and police found that he had sums of money in euros, pound sterling and rupee, as well as Georgina's credit card and the key to the bedroom in the flat on him. On Monday the 26th of May, just after 5pm, the man was charged with Georgina Eager's murder. Questions immediately rose as to whether the man would ultimately face trial in Ireland or in the UK, given the man was a British national, and UK law provided for British subjects to be tried there for crimes committed in other jurisdictions. Georgina was laid to rest on the 31st of May in St. Joseph's Church, Newtown Mount Kennedy. Local priest Father Derek Doyle told the devastated congregation, quote, This is something beyond all understanding. Georgina was in the prime of her life, and yet she was taken from us in the most callous and brutal manner. End quote. The man who had been arrested, named in the press by this stage as Mr. Christopher Newman, Georgina's former employer, appeared in the Old Bailey on the 3rd of June. He was reported as being 60 years old and a homeopathic doctor. He also went by the name Safdeen and had given an address in South East London. He was remanded in custody to appear later at a plea and directions hearing. On the 19th of August 2003, Christopher Newman appeared in Woolwich Crown Court and pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. Nearly two years later, in early August of 2005, it was decided that Newman would not be extradited to face trial in Ireland and would instead answer the murder charge against him in an English court midway through that month. 
there was no comprehensive explanation as to why the extradition had not gone ahead. Liz McManus, the deputy leader of the Labour Party at the time and the local TD for Wicklow, told the Irish Times that it was her understanding that the family had not been fully informed on the matter. She intended on travelling to the UK with the eager family for the opening of the trial to lend support. The Gardee said they had decided not to seek extradition because the English police had begun the prosecution after Newman's arrest. An observer was to be sent from the Irish Embassy in London to attend the trial, but family members who were not being called on as witnesses would have to make arrangements for travel and their own accommodation while there, with the Irish state saying they weren't in a position to offer financial assistance in these circumstances. Over two years after Georgina's death, on Monday the 8th of August 2005, Newman's trial opened in the Inner London Crown Court before Judge Jonathan Vanderwerf and a jury of eight men and four women. Michael Birnbaum was acting on behalf of the Crown and outlined the background of both the defendant and the victim in his opening statement. Newman, he said, was born as Panna Lalpalta in India. He changed his name to Saf Dean before finally settling on Christopher Newman in 2000, though he went by Professor Dean. Georgina was described as a lovely young woman who was perhaps a bit too trusting at times. She had taken up a position working for Professor Dean, and she'd held him in high regard as a learned man. The two had developed a close relationship. However, in spring of 2002, the Crown asserted that Georgina was unhappy in her work and with her relationship, and the court was told it would hear evidence that she had been considering looking for a new job. It was the Crown's case that Newman and Ms. Eager had fought on the Wednesday night, after which Newman had killed her and then taken money from her bank accounts before leaving the country. Newman had returned to London, where he'd seen his ex-wife and two sons, then aged 15 and 19. The defendant had told her that he'd made the biggest mistake of his life and was contemplating suicide. The court was told that Newman admitted that he'd killed Ms. Eager, but said that he had acted in self-defence. A doctor had examined him when he was in custody and said that the only wound that was not self-inflicted was a small injury to his right elbow, which was a few days old. On Tuesday the 9th of August, Georgina's parents, George and Sylvia, and her sisters gave evidence in the trial. Her father George spoke about letters written by Georgina to what she called her guardian angels. He was questioned about her quote-unquote strange beliefs, but said simply that Georgina believed in guardian angels and was a spiritual person. He went on to describe the events leading up to the discovery of his daughter's body. Just after midnight on the 22nd of May, the early hours of that Thursday, the phone at the Eagers family home rang and disconnected. Georgina's sister dialed 1471, the Irish equivalent of Star 69 at the time, and found out that the call had come from Walkinstown. Georgina's mother rang her and their daughter was crying, saying she wanted to come home. Sylvia told the court that she'd never heard her daughter like that before. She was out of breath 
It sounded like she had been attacked and Sylvia told her to run. George then rang Georgina on her mobile and got her to get into a taxi to come back to the family home, telling her that he'd left money to pay for the cab when she arrived. At half one, though, Sylvia told the court that Georgina had rang her back and sounded totally different by that stage. She was calm and apologised for upsetting everyone. Sylvia said Georgina had told her she was having a cup of coffee and that she'd be home in a few hours. She said she'd been upset because the neighbours were having a drunken row. On the stand, Sylvia admitted that she hadn't questioned the excuse at the time, but looking back, it didn't make sense to her. It was strange to think that Georgina had been so upset by a row going on next door. Newman's barrister, Andrew Smiler, asked Mrs. Eager about Georgina's phone records. They had indicated that Georgina had begun the journey home and had been nearly at the house when she turned around and went back to Walkinstown. Surely, he said, this indicated that Georgina had not been frightened enough by what was happening at her home to stay away. Sylvia said it was possible that her daughter wasn't frightened, but said she was sure that Georgina had been terribly upset when she was on the phone to her. Brenda, the second eldest, cried while she was on the stand and said she and Georgina had been best friends. She said that Georgina had been hired as a receptionist by Newman, but had done basically everything at the clinic, including therapies such as colonics and massages. On Wednesday, the jury were shown CCTV footage of Newman from the 21st and 22nd. There was video of Newman sitting at a table at the 78 Club Casino and making calls to Georgina while he sat there between half three and half four in the morning. Later that day, around noon, he was captured on camera withdrawing 500 euro from an ATM near to the Walkinstown roundabout. Shortly after, there was further footage of him entering a bank where he withdrew a further €700 Euro from one of Ms. Eager's accounts. Newman arrived at Dublin Airport at half past twelve and then boarded a quarter past one flight to London. The court was told that British police had made contact with Gardi when they rang Georgina's number, which had been stored in Newman's phone. The Irish police had answered rather than Georgina and they informed the Met of the body that had just been found. James Gardner, a resident of Walkinstown, took the stand and told the court that on the evening of the 21st, the Wednesday, he had heard a man shouting as he passed the clinic on St. Peter's Road. The man was sitting in a car outside the house and said it might have been the voice of Mr. Newman. Mr. Gardner said the voice was angry-sounding to him and denied when asked by the defence counsel whether this might have been anger mixed with concern that he had heard. Mr. Gardner said, quote, There was no concern at all. I'm very sure of that. End quote. 25 minutes after Mr. Gardner had passed the clinic, a neighbour on St. Peter's Road had seen Georgina standing on the road next to a car. Brona Young gave evidence on the stand that the car's driver's side door was open and Mr. Newman, known locally as the doctor, was sitting in it. Ms. Young went on to say that she could not hear exactly what was being said by Georgina and the doctor, but she had the impression that Ms. Eager was trying to get Mr. Newman to come out of the car. The next witness was Lisa O'Brien, who had been hired as an unpaid intern to work in the clinic two weeks before Ms. Eager's death. 
She was being given training in reflexology and holistic massage in lieu of wages. Ms. O'Brien said she had found Ms. Eager to be easygoing and a good teacher, but said Mr. Newman was arrogant and testy. The witness went on to say that it was clear, even in the short period she'd been in the clinic, that Georgina really admired Mr. Newman and said she had the impression that the two were engaged in a relationship. According to her testimony, Newman had banned Georgina from giving male clients massages in the clinic because Newman had said men asked for the massage, but they wanted something else. Lisa had also overheard an argument between the two about who Georgina was ringing and had seen Newman go through her phone. On Thursday, another person who had worked at the clinic gave their evidence. Mr. Katja Gabasonia testified through an interpreter that he had worked at the back of the clinic in a garage where he made massage tables, which were sold through the clinic. On the morning of the 22nd, he had arrived to work to be greeted by Mr. Newman, who was wearing only a towel. It was usual for Mr. Newman to answer the door in a suit or a shirt and trousers. Newman had told him to go to work, but at about 20 past 10, Newman had called him and said that he and Georgina were going away and that the clinic was closed. If anyone arrived looking for them, Mr. Gabasonia was to tell them to come back the next day. The Irish state pathologist, Professor Mary Cassidy, also gave evidence at the London trial. The result of the post-mortem carried out in Dublin was revealed, which stated that Georgina Eager had died sometime in the early hours of the 22nd, between 5am and half-past nine. Professor Cassidy told the jury that Georgina had suffered 21 stab wounds, three puncture wounds and five incise wounds to her face, neck, chest and back. There were also a number of other defensive injuries present on her body. Professor Cassidy said that the perpetrator appeared to have some medical or anatomical knowledge because they'd targeted an area of Georgina's upper spine in the attack. In fact, Mary Cassidy said she had never seen anything like it before and it was unprecedented in her experience. The wounds to the front of Ms. Eager's body appeared to have been made first, after which she had become immobilised. The pathologist said that Georgina had been dead or close to death when she was stabbed in the back of the neck. The kitchen knife used in the attack had been found in Georgina's neck by Gardie when they entered the flat. On cross-examination, it was put to the pathologist that it could be the case that a wound on the left side of Ms. Eager's neck might be consistent with the knife being held by two people and Ms. Eager turning away as the wound was inflicted. Professor Cassidy said simply that she didn't know what position Ms. Eager had been in when that blow was struck, but it was possible. Mary Cassidy agreed that the initial wounds could have been inflicted in a frenzied attack. She described them as haphazard. The final blow to the back of the neck, she said, achieved very little if it was the case that Georgina had already bled out from the wound to the artery in her neck. That wound, the professor said, was bad, but technically survivable. It would have taken a short period of time for death to occur from it, but it certainly would not have been instant. Later, during the proceedings, the jury were shown Georgina's blood-spattered nightgown, along with large, full-coloured photos of the crime scene, which were passed around to the jury box. On Friday, the court heard from Newman's ex-wife, Mafida Luigi, 
She said that Newman had arrived at her home in Islington at about 6pm on the evening of the 22nd. She described how, after not seeing her ex-husband for 10 years, he'd arrived to her home that night talking about committing suicide and said she and her family would read all about why in the papers the next day. Miss Luigi tried to joke with him, asking Newman what he'd done, but he refused to tell her and kept repeating himself, so she asked him to leave. Police Constable Paul Collard Odell described questioning Newman at ten past ten that night on Westminster Bridge. The officer said the defendant was in quite a bad state, and after being taken into custody, he had at one point fallen asleep. They'd tried to make contact with family and rang Georgina's number, which was saved on the defendant's mobile phone. Newman was arrested and cautioned in relation to Georgina's death at a quarter to five on the morning of the 23rd of May. Then the taxi driver who had picked Newman up also took to the stand. William O'Brien said he'd taken a fare from Newman just after 10pm in Islington and Newman had asked him to drive to Westminster Bridge. Newman talked throughout the drive but it was difficult to understand as he'd been drinking and was slurring his words. The accused had the driver stop so he could buy a bottle of champagne on the way to the river. When Newman got back into the cab after the purchase, he fell over, proceeded to open the champagne bottle with his teeth and then sprayed the drink everywhere. When they arrived at Westminster Bridge, Newman had the driver go to one end of the bridge and then turn and then go back and forth until police officers approached and took Newman from the cab. The court also heard from the manager of the 78 Club Casino on Dublin's Anger Street by way of a statement made by her to police. Sylvia Mead said that Newman had come to the club in the early hours of the 22nd. This was unusual in and of itself as he was a repeat customer and member of the club and usually arrived at around 8pm and would stay there for a number of hours gambling. Ms. Mead said that that night Newman was agitated and at one point was on the phone for 20 minutes. Again, this was unusual as he was known as a serious gambler and was in the habit of concentrating on what he was doing. He was reported to have lost around €1,900 in the space of an hour at a roulette table and even gambled away the small change in his pocket before leaving that night. The following Monday, a recording of Newman's first interview with the police in London was played for the court. Detective Inspector David Flood, the senior officer at the interview, asked Newman if he had said when he was first arrested by police on Westminster Bridge, quote, you found out she was murdered, end quote. But in the station, Newman now said he had actually told the arresting officers, quote, you mean to tell me she was murdered, I do not believe it, end quote. He went on to say that Ms. Eager was the most honest person he knew, that she was his life and his soul. He said he had never raised a hand to her or anyone else in his life. He was also asked if he remembered killing Ms. Eager, to which Newman responded, quote, How can you ask that when I do not accept that she is dead? End quote. He told police he had travelled to London to visit his two sons, whom he had not seen in ten years but in further interviews, Newman had made little to no comment, as per the advice of his solicitor. A number of Georgina's friends gave evidence on Tuesday the 17th of August. 
One friend, Tracy Smith, told the court that Georgina had confided in her that just a few weeks after she began her work at the clinic, Newman had mentioned handing over the clinic to her. Ms. Smith said she had been concerned when she heard this and told Georgina to be careful, as no one gives away anything for free. Georgina had not told her friends that she was in a relationship with Newman, but all of them thought that there was something going on between them. Noreen Griffin recalled for the court that Georgina had been chatting with a man while they attended a charity function in Punchestown together, and that she had given this man Georgina's number. The witness later heard from him saying a foreign-sounding man had called him from Georgina's phone and told him not to call her again. Ms. Griffin had told Georgina about this, and the witness said her friend had responded by saying, quote, this is not on, end quote, and had seemed taken aback about it. The following day, a client of the clinic gave evidence. Ms. Vivian Nolan had taken a massage course at the centre and had met both Georgina and Mr. Newman. She said she never would have thought that Georgina and Newman were in a relationship with one another, and had the impression that Georgina was in fact scared of the older man. Ms. Nolan described Newman as dominant and said she'd witnessed him speak to Georgina as if she was a child scolding her. She went on to say that Georgina jumped to it when asked by Newman to do something, and once when the witness had asked the victim how she tolerated working for such a bossy man, Georgina had said she had learned a lot from him. At another time, Ms. Nolan said Georgina had told her that Newman was worried that she, Georgina, would not return to work after a holiday with her family. Mr. Smiler for the defence asked Miss Nolan if it might be the case that she was telling her story from the perspective of hindsight now that Mr. Newman was accused of murder, and that she was perhaps letting personal ill will towards the defendant get in the way. He also put it to her that it was possible she had misunderstood some aspects of her interactions with Georgina, particularly the comment about leaving the clinic. The defence lawyer said that this had occurred after an argument that Miss Eager and Mr. Newman had had in which his client had told the deceased that she could always leave if she wanted to. Mr. Smiler suggested that Georgina had intended to go back to work but was at the time unsure if Mr. Newman wanted her to come back. And Smiler pointed to cards and letters written by Georgina to the defendant which described him in terms like inspiring and beautiful with an open heart. Later that day, Tuesday the 16th of August, Niall O'Kelly, Georgina's former boyfriend, also gave evidence. The two had been together immediately before Georgina began working at Newman's clinic, and they'd remained a couple for the first few weeks of her employment there. They'd been together for 10 months at that stage. Just before their split, Georgina and Niall had gone to Paris, where O'Kelly recalled that Georgina had received an angry call from Newman, which had driven her to tears. O'Kelly told the court that he had been concerned when Georgina told him that Newman was planning on giving the clinic to her because he felt no one in their right mind would do such a thing, but he hadn't wanted to put her off her work. He did tell her that he was worried about her working environment. Andrew Smiler asked Niall O'Kelly if it was not the case that Georgina had wanted to take over the business and that had been her main concern. But Niall said that although Georgina would have liked her own business, she wasn't greedy or cunning 
and the notion that Georgina wanted to take away Newman's business from him wouldn't have sat well with what Niall knew of Georgina's character. On Thursday the 18th, the court heard that traces of blood were found on Christopher Newman's jacket, trousers, shoes and wristwatch after his arrest in London. However, it was not possible to say whose blood it was. DNA profiles matched both Mr. Newman and Ms. Eager, but that DNA could have come from blood, sweat, saliva or skin cells. Garda Cara O'Sullivan described for the court calling to the flat on St. Peter's Road and discovering Ms. Eager's body in her bed. Her colleague, Garda Mark O'Neill, had kicked in the door of the bedroom when they found it locked. A duvet had covered Georgina's body and a pillow covered her head, and the knife was protruding from her neck. The following day, the jury was presented with the knife that had been used in the killing. It was a six-inch, sharply tapered, serrated kitchen knife and matched the set present in the flat's kitchen. A member of the Garda Technical Bureau travelled to give evidence regarding its discovery in Ms. Eager's body on the 22nd of May 2003 and went on to say that Georgina had been found on her bed, lying face down and covered in the duvet. The room was otherwise disturbed, though there were bloodstains on the wall, with the blood droplets being sizable enough to have dripped down the wall and to the skirting boards. A bloodstained hammer was found beneath Georgina's body, but there was no indication that it had been used in the attack. The key to the door that had been broken down by Gardy was missing and was later recovered by police in London, among Mr. Newman's belongings. The case for the defence opened on Monday the 22nd of August. Mr. Smiler told the court that in the spring of 2003, his client believed that Georgina was becoming increasingly unstable and had begun acting irrationally. At the time, his client, he said, was becoming overwhelmed by the stress of it. Newman had feelings for Georgina, yes, but his feelings for his clinic and his business were always his priority. Mr. Smiler went on to tell the jury that they would hear that Mr. Newman had been attacked by Ms. Eager in the course of an argument. Newman had been provoked by the woman and had also acted in self-defence. It was the defence's case that on the 21st of May the two had had a huge argument and Georgina had left for her parents' house. But the following morning, Newman had seen Georgina's car still parked at the clinic. The defendant had gone into the flat and then they'd had another row where Georgina had mocked him, saying she'd spent the previous night with another man who didn't need the help of pills to have sex with her. She'd thrown a hammer at him and then given out that Newman had promised the clinic to her. That's why she'd slept with him, she said. He'd promised that he'd leave and the business would be hers. Newman said he'd then threatened to tell her parents that she was a quote-unquote cheap slut and said he would send them tapes of the two of them together and another he had taken secretly of Georgina giving a massage to a male client who was uncovered and sexually aroused. With that, it was alleged Georgina had picked up the knife, telling him not to dare call her parents. After this, Mr. Smiler said Georgina had approached Newman with the knife, who was lying in bed at the time, and there was a seesaw struggle over the weapon. Georgina loosened her grip on the knife, but Newman hadn't, so as she did so, the knife travelled back towards her and cut an artery in her neck. 
Newman said after the initial wound, Georgina had displayed inhuman strength in her continued attack against him, and he'd been forced to further defend himself. After that, Newman accepted that he had continued to stab her. Smiler said, quote, After the carotid artery had been severed, Georgina would have died within probably 60 seconds. But Mr. Newman didn't know that, and certainly her actions after the knife went in didn't suggest to him that she was about to die. Georgina was effectively in the death throes, but for those 30 or 60 seconds, Mr. Newman was focused on just one thing. He had to take the knife away. He had to stop this tornado. The more she struggled, the more he became terrified, the more he became determined to protect himself from what he saw as a continued assault. End quote. On Tuesday, the 23rd of August, Christopher Newman's own evidence in the case began. He began by saying that initially after meeting Georgina, he wasn't going to employ her at the clinic, but he'd taken her on for a trial period and found that she was good at the work and had an interest in alternative therapies. He asked her for dinner on her third day working for him and said their relationship began the following day breaking what Newman called one of his personal rules regarding having relationships with employees. The jury was shown a clip from a video that Newman had taken of the two of them together the night their relationship began. The defendant said he had taken the video because he was a bit afraid of beginning a relationship with Georgina due to past bad experiences. In the video, the two were also seen talking about Georgina's boyfriend at the time, and the defence team pointed to this as evidence of Georgina's bad character, that she had cheated on her partner. Mr Smiler told the jury that the video had not been shown to the court in order to malign Georgina, but simply to show that at the time that their relationship began, it was clear that Georgina had been seeing someone else. And this being the case, it called into question her friends' accounts of her personality and the notion that Georgina Eager was naive. When Smiler asked Newman if he had stabbed Georgina, he said no. Quote, I cannot accept that my hands killed her. I cannot accept that I stabbed her. End quote. Newman's lawyer asked him, did he remember the 23 wounds? And Newman again said no. The defendant said that when he was told about them by police, he'd asked them to take him back to Ireland to die. Then, according to the Irish Independent, Newman let out an anguished, blood-curdling scream. Newman insisted he remembered only the struggle, saying, quote, I just lost my brain, like someone in a hurricane. That's all I can remember, end quote. On cross-examination by Michael Birnbaum, Newman was confronted about his qualifications to call himself a professor or doctor. It was pointed out that he had no medical qualifications and had completed only a Bachelor's of Science degree. Newman was insistent that he was a professor of what he called factology, which he said wasn't a belief, and said further that his qualifications came from the approval of the public and his clients. Newman also rejected the suggestion of Mr. Birnbaum that immediately after Georgina's death, he had gone looking for somewhere to hide her body. Soon after Georgina had died, Newman had gotten into his car and had driven down to County Kildare and around the Curra. The Crown asserted that he had been looking for a dump site. In that period, while Newman was driving around Kildare, he had called his employee Kak Kagabisonia six times between 10.20am 
and a quarter past twelve. The calls put Newman near to a rubbish dump 20 miles outside Dublin and various points on the road back to Walkinstown. Later, Newman's blue Toyota Camry was examined by the Gardee and dirt was discovered on the pedals and in the tyre wells. But in response to Mr. Birnbaum's questioning, Newman was indignant and said he had gone to the countryside looking for a place to kill himself. Instead, he had decided to travel to London and throw himself into the Thames. The defendant also denied that he had travelled to London as the first leg of a journey to India, where he had intended to go in order to avoid prosecution in the case. Birnbaum also brought up the secret video taken by Newman of Georgina giving a massage to a naked client, which Newman said showed she was becoming unprofessional. Counsel on behalf of the Crown put it to the defendant that he had been spying on Georgina by videotaping not only the intimate interactions between him and his employee, but also treatments Georgina gave in the clinic. Birnbaum put it to Newman that he was jealous and controlling, but Newman denied this. Asking the defendant directly about the attack that had led to Georgina's death, Birnbaum put it to Newman that he had taken the knife from Georgina's kitchen into her bedroom with the intent to kill her. But Newman said the knife was already in the bedroom. It had been with a fruit bowl which was next to the bed and was used to cut the fruit. The bowl in question, however, appeared to have been most recently used as an ashtray. Still, Newman insisted that he was frightened and would never have killed anyone. Andrew Smiler re-examined Christopher Newman then, with the defendant saying he wasn't possessive over Georgina. Smiler also brought Newman through his education in order to show that the Crown had wrongly alleged that Newman and his business was a sham. Newman had professional negligence insurance and was accredited by the Guild of Complementary Practitioners, in addition to holding a diploma in anatomy and physiology. Throughout Newman's testimony, Mr. Smiler had asked his client to trust him, to give simple answers to the questions asked by him and to address the issues before them while he was on the stand. Newman was described by a reporter present from the Irish Times as frequently rambling, particularly when it came to explanations of the practice of factology. The judge had to warn Mr. Smiler to stop asking leading questions. In the end, Smiler told his client that it was his last chance to explain what had happened. Newman said only, quote, Somehow the knife struck her. It was all dark, panic. I had so much fright. End quote. Christopher Newman had sobbed through the multiple days of evidence on the stand. On Thursday, the 1st of September, Mr. Birnbaum delivered the closing speech for the Crown. He said that people were entitled to self-defence, but only insofar as they used reasonable force. Retaliation or revenge were not covered by the defence. The Queen's Counsel said in this case, quote, the explosion of violence was totally unreasonable, end quote. Newman had also made no attempt to disarm Georgina, which he was more than capable of doing due to their disparity in size, and her injuries didn't indicate that he'd been looking simply to defend himself. He had specifically targeted the area at the top of Georgina's spinal column. 
Birnbaum said, quote, the violence was totally out of proportion to any threat. He was not actually in any danger. He could have easily disarmed her. We do not accept that it was she who initiated the use of the knife, end quote. Andrew Smiler said in closing that the jury should not come to their decision based on his client's personality, which he described as being bizarre. But, he said, being bizarre is not a crime. Newman wasn't able to remember the details of what had happened due to the shock of the situation. He said, quote, Mr. Newman was a man who had lost his mind because he had just killed somebody he loved, killed her on the spur of the moment, end quote. Mr. Smiler went on to say that there was compelling evidence that the attack on Georgina was frenzied in nature and was therefore not planned. Newman, he said, had lost control. He questioned why it was that a manslaughter charge had not been brought against Newman, which he said was more properly the charge his client should have faced. He said, quote, frenzied by definition is when control is lost and he clearly lost control. If he was a cold, calculating killer, why did he tie himself to the scene by taking her passport and credit cards? There are so many logical inconsistencies to believe that we would have to turn somersaults to the facts. End quote. Smiler said that it was possible that due to public feeling in Ireland, the charge of murder had been laid down. He said some of the press in Ireland was sensational and inaccurate and pointed out that Liz McManus and a staff member from the Irish Embassy had been present throughout the trial. Smiler went on to say, quote, Decisions taken about matters of justice against a background of strong public feeling and emotion sometimes are not good decisions, end quote. Then the jury heard their charge from Judge Vanderwerf. He said they had to decide whether there was self-defence in the case or whether this had been an act of revenge or retaliation. Judge Vanderwerf also said that the jury needed to decide if the force used in the case was excessive. The jury was reminded that Newman had been interviewed under caution where he admitted killing Georgina but had not given the version of events presented at the trial at that time, nor did he in any of the following interviews. If the jury didn't believe that Newman had set out to kill Georgina, he must be acquitted of murder. They had two questions before them. Did Newman intend on killing her? And were his actions unlawful? If their answer was yes to both questions, then a conviction for murder was appropriate. However, if provocation had been proved by the defence team, then Newman would be guilty of manslaughter. It was up to the jury to consider whether they believed an ordinary man in the same specific circumstances as Newman would have reacted in the same manner in order to decide if provocation was in play. Just before deliberations began, there was a delay in the proceedings. Newman had asked his counsel to try and hand a letter to the judge, asking for the jury to be discharged due to two newspaper articles published in the Sunday World in Ireland in August. Newman and his lawyer asserted that these stories would be likely to influence the jury against the defendant, but Judge Vanderwerf refused to accept the letter, saying that there was no evidence that the jury had seen the articles in question. This was just the final attempt in a series of many by the defendant to delay the proceedings. Newman had by that point already worked with and fired seven legal teams in quick succession as his case was prepared to be heard. 
The jury, less one man who was excused to attend a funeral, took four and a half hours to deliberate. They found Christopher Newman guilty of murder. After the verdict was announced, Judge Jonathan Vanderwerf said he agreed with the jury's decision, and he said he thought it most likely that Georgina had been asleep when the attack on her began, and that she had struggled fiercely when she was awoken by the initial strikes with the knife. The violence was such that, even after Georgina had passed away, Newman had continued to stab her over and over again. Newman was sentenced to life imprisonment, with parole not to be considered until he had served a minimum of 12 years. A statement was made to the press by George Eager after the completion of the proceedings. He thanked the police and the courts and said that though nothing could ease the pain of losing Georgina, they were grateful for the verdict and it would help them find some peace. He expressed that the family were upset that they had been forced to travel to the UK for the trial. They also thanked the media, in particular the Irish Times, for their coverage of the case, and the TD Liz McManus, who had been with them throughout. The question of why the trial had been held in London continued to be a source of pain for the Eager family, and was covered by the press in Ireland even after the trial's completion. It emerged that British authorities had asked Irish authorities to seek extradition, but it was reported that the Irish authorities refused to do so, and that therefore the case was heard in the UK. The Eager family wanted to know why. They were also angry that the Irish state did not send a legal observer to the trial. In response to this, the Minister for Justice's office said a legal observer or advisor was the remit of the Chief State Solicitor's office. The family was also advised that they could seek compensation from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Tribunal for their expenses in attending the trial for the period after they were required as witnesses. Superintendent Tom Mulligan from Crumlin told the press that he imagined that lawyers in both jurisdictions had made the decision together and and had been in agreement of where Christopher Newman would be tried. The controversy about the location of the trial raged on when on Thursday the 3rd of September, the Irish Times reported the Crown Prosecution Service's response to the Eager family's concerns. They outlined that Newman had been arrested and charged with murder under the 1861 law, and that, quote, at the time that discussions took place between the CPS and the DPP's office in Dublin, Mr. Newman had already been charged in England and the CPS lawyer who had conduct of the case had decided that there was sufficient evidence to proceed and the public interest required a prosecution, in accordance with the Code for Crown Prosecutors. Once the Irish authorities had made their decision as to the extradition, we proceeded with the case, end quote. But as many observers pointed out at the time, regardless of whether the decision not to extradite Newman was a correct one, it's likely that the case being gone ahead with in the UK courts meant that lengthy delays associated with the extradition process were avoided. Then, the following week, it emerged that Gardy had prepared other files for the DPP on Christopher Newman in relation to two other incidents. The first related to a woman in her 20s who had worked for Newman. She called police after she learned that he had been arrested for murder and said she had a sexual relationship with the man. 
She alleged he had taken her passport from her and had pressured her to perform sexual acts on friends of his that he'd brought to the clinic for massages. She said he'd taped some of their intimate moments together and he had threatened to send this to her family when she decided to leave. Instead, he sent an edited version of some tapes to friends and family. Yet another woman, also an immigrant to Ireland, told Gardy that she'd been blackmailed by Newman. He'd also taped sexual acts between the two and had sent a tape to her family when she tried to leave. It became clear that there had been a high turnover in female staff and interns at the clinic because their duties expanded quickly and some women had been asked to provide personal services to male clients. Former employees that came forward to the Sunday World alleged that Newman specifically targeted vulnerable women to abuse under the guise of an employer and later as a sort of guru. Gardy had found secretly recorded tapes of the treatment room when they searched the flat after Georgina's death. Some of them showed Newman engaging in sexual acts with women who appeared to be under the influence of something that made them drowsy. But the Irish Times reported that Garda sources were unsure if the cases would be pursued by the DPP, as Newman was at that point serving his life sentence in the UK. In June of 2007, news broke that Newman's attempt to appeal his murder sentence had failed in the upper court in London. His legal team had complained that the direction by the judge was insufficient, but the appeal court concluded, quote, the learned judge gave a very full direction to the jury on the law. He also dealt fully and accurately as to provocation. There is no basis for any of these grounds of appeal against conviction, end quote. Newman's appeal against his minimum term was also dismissed. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Linda Hayden, Alice Burke, Lucy Colley, Mary Moorish, Colette Green, and Sarah Dixon. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with those warm fuzzies you get from helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as Nifty March. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Don't forget to check out BetterHelp to keep up with your self-care and make sure to download June's Journey, the best hidden object game around. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So head to the show notes and check out these awesome products and services. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.